So we're in 1 Peter, and last time we got the first 12 verses of the first chapter. Peter is written to Hebrews. It's sort of open to question whether they are members of the ten lost tribes or whether they are just regular Jews in exile. That's his franchise. So when he writes his letters, he assumes that his audience knows Scripture. And that's as opposed to Paul, who has the Gentile franchise, and he cannot make such an assumption. So when Paul writes his letters, he assumes that he's writing to somebody who doesn't know anything about Scripture or God, and he sort of has to be pretty fundamental and basic. Peter is not under that constraint. And your scriptural reference for that is in Galatians, in chapter 2. And I want to pick it up at verse 6. So to recap Galatians very briefly... Paul is dealing with a church that he planted in Galatia and Jews, members of the circumcision party, which is to say Jews who are former Pharisees who are of the political opinion that a Gentile must be circumcised in order to be saved, have come through and are sowing confusion and doubt among the Gentile converts in Galatia. So the first couple of chapters, what Paul is doing in Galatians is he is establishing his credentials as being at least equal to and probably superior to these people who are sowing confusion. So that's the purpose of this part of Galatians. He's saying these guys that are coming through and saying, yeah, 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 I know this guy Paul told you that, but we're real live, honest to God Jews, and we came from Jerusalem and we know better and we're telling you what to do. Paul is saying, I got better credentials than that. So in Galatians 2, 6, he's talking about his visit to Jerusalem for the council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And so Paul is referring to that. So verse 6, and apart from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So what Paul is saying here is, as they were talking things over at the Council of Jerusalem, the council recognized that Paul had the Gentile franchise. In other words, his ministry was to go to Gentiles and bring them into the kingdom of God, not to make them Jews, but just to bring them into the kingdom, get them saved. Peter's ministry was to the circumcised, which is to say, to Hebrews. So there's your scripture reference for the stuff I talked about briefly last time. Back to 1 Peter now. We finished the first 12 verses of chapter 1. So I'm going to pick it up at 110 and then go on into 13. So concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you 
through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is where we stopped, and we spent considerable time talking about the fact that the salvation of the Jews and the salvation of the Gentiles is a different thing in Scripture. What he's saying about salvation of the Jews is that was predicted by the prophets. And the revelation of Messiah indicates that that's going to happen. The salvation of the Gentiles was not indicated in Scripture, and that was a mystery. So this is one of the differences between a letter from Paul and a letter from Peter. Because Peter, talking to the circumcised, is simply affirming what was prophesied about them in the Old Testament. So verse 13 now. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua Messiah. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Pause there for a minute. It starts off, therefore, and of course the therefore is because of what we just read previously. So preparing your minds for action, in my translation, girding the loins of your mind is what the actual Greek says. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua Messiah. Notice how it says that, that the grace is going to be brought to them at the revelation. And of course, we have a whole book of the Bible talking about the revelation of Yeshua Messiah. Previously to this, in chapter 1, Peter talked about an inheritance. And we talked about the inheritance as being a place in the kingdom to come. And Peter said earlier on that this inheritance is being kept for you in heaven. And what we said last time is in Revelation, Revelation 21, I believe, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. So the new Jerusalem is the inheritance that the Hebrews are waiting for. And it will come down from heaven at the revelation of Yeshua. So what he's talking about in 1 Peter 13, is set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua Messiah. So live your lives expecting that to happen. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And of course, you shall be holy for I am holy is a quote from Leviticus. So, one of the things that he is saying is not to be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. If these are Hebrews, what were they ignorant about in the past? Their comment was the Messiah would die. Now, that's certainly something they might have been ignorant about. The Pharisaic understanding is works salvation. Again, we don't know which kind of Hebrews these are. These could be Hebrews from the ten northern tribes, in which case they are probably not rabbinic. Or they could be Jews that were scattered at the time of Babylon and didn't all come back. So you have a major Jewish presence in Babylon, certainly after the time of the New Testament. 
So the Babylonian dispersion would have left Jews scattered all over the Levant, as did the dispersion under the Assyrians about 125 years before. So the idea is there's going to be Hebrews scattered all over that region from one of those two dispersions. Isn't clear which one we're talking about. If it was from the Babylonian dispersion, then these would have been rabbinic Jews because Babylon was a major center of Jewish study and where a lot of the oral law was written. So the Babylonian Talmud, for example, is still studied today by devout Jews. So we aren't sure what we're talking about here other than the fact that I am reasonably sure we're talking about Hebrews. But one of the things that happens in the Gospels when Yeshua is dealing with normative Jews, he slaps them around pretty consistently for believing in their own righteousness and that their righteousness was going to be sufficient to save them. And in fact, one of the frequent questions that he gets is, what do I do to inherit eternal life? So he answers those questions. And then in John 8, of course, we have this sort of knockdown, drag out argument between Yeshua and the Pharisees about who he is. Okay, remember they say, we're well, not the children of fornication, we're children of Abraham. And he answers them, before Abraham was, I am. And that sort of freaked them out. So the revelation, the death and resurrection of Yeshua, Peter is saying that should change your perspective. And the stuff that you learned from Judaism you need to rethink some of that stuff. Now, one of the things that I am going to suggest to you very strongly is one of the things that they not rethink is the Torah. Because Peter quotes the Torah as authority. So he says, you got to be holy because God says to be holy because he's holy. Well, that's straight out of Leviticus. And it is not the case that you can stand on something for scriptural authority and then turn around and say it's not valid. One of the things that Yeshua does during the time he was walking in Jerusalem is he never spoke against Moses. What he spoke against was the stuff that normative Judaism had layered on top of Moses, which made their law too difficult to bear. Remember, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what he's talking about is Torah as opposed to all the stuff that Judaism had layered on top of it. So I'm suggesting that when Peter here is saying, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, I'm suggesting that's what he's talking about. We're down to verse 16 here. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And what he's saying is you guys are in exile. You are part of the dispersion. And if you were writing to Gentiles, they wouldn't be in exile. They would be at home. One of the things that he is saying is everyone will be judged impartially according to each one's deeds. And that is true 
regardless of whether you are a Jew or a Christian or a Gentile. And in fact, it says that in Revelation. Books are going to be open and everybody's going to be judged according to their works. What did you do? It doesn't say you're going to be judged according to what you think. Now, having said that, full stop, pirouette, and understand that if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will have changed from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life and you will be judged, but the judgment will not involve the lake of fire. Some of you are going to be in heaven, but all your works are going to be burned away like a reentry capsule coming in from space. And the only thing that is going to reach the ground is the crew inside. Everything else is going to be burned away, and you won't be saved, although you're going to smell like smoke. So the idea that you're going to be judged on what you do is critically important both to Judaism and to Christianity. So you want to behave in a way that you will receive commendation and not condemnation for your works. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with precious things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And again, he's going back to Leviticus. He's saying, what makes a lamb a suitable sacrifice? So he's speaking to them in terms that they understand, that this Messiah who shed his blood for you is a biblically acceptable sacrifice. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Notice Yeshua is the lamb. God foreknew him, and we talked about that when we were in Colossians. What Paul said was he took you back to the creation where he talked about that Yeshua was the agent by which everything was created. So Peter is saying much the same thing. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So the idea here is he, Yeshua, existed before the world existed. And when we were in Colossians, what we said was in Genesis 1, what you have is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit there. In other words, the Father purposed it, the Spirit was the power that made it happen, and the word of the Son, the voice of the Son, was the agency by which it was brought into existence. And it was brought into existence for him, for the Son, for the Messiah, because that was going to be the venue of his kingdom forever and ever. So Peter is saying here that he, Messiah, was foreknown before the foundation of the world and was made manifest in the last time for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So one of the things that Yeshua says is his mission is to bring people to the Father. So 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, 
For all flesh is like grass, and all glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Camp out there for just a minute. First off, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. How do you obey the truth? What would you obey that's the truth? I would say Torah. The pure, simple Torah, which is the written Torah, which is the word that Moses wrote down, is the truth. And what Peter has been saying up until now is when you saw the resurrection of Messiah, what that did is it pulled you out of the error that Judaism had piled on top of Moses. So having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, the Torah, I'm suggesting, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And Yeshua, when he is asked by a lawyer, what is the greatest commandment? What does he say? Love God and love your neighbor. He says everything else in the Torah hangs on that. And this is something that Jews would not be surprised to hear. Because the central one is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and so forth, right? And thy neighbor as thyself. That's Torah 101. So what Peter is saying here is, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And all flesh is like grass. Now what he's saying here is, first off, go back to Paul now. And Paul and Yeshua both use agricultural metaphors to describe the kingdom. And Paul in Corinthians talks about the body that you are inhabiting right now being seed. And let me take a digression here. A seed is nothing but information. What a seed is, is all of the information that you need to build a plant. So an acorn has got everything you need in it to build an oak tree. A grain of wheat has whatever you need to build a stalk of wheat. It's just information. And all of the stuff that wraps around it, you know, the husk and the, all that kind of stuff, is essentially like a thumb drive in a computer. The thumb drive has mass. The information on the thumb drive doesn't. So the thumb drive is not the information. The files that are on the thumb drive are the information, and those files can be moved from device to device to device, and they don't change. So you can take a music file off a thumb drive, you can put it on your computer, you can put it on your phone. That doesn't have any mass, but it has to attach to something that does have mass to be useful in this world. So a seed is nothing but the information that's needed to make a plant. And what Yeshua says, and Paul says, is in order for that plant to germinate, the seed has to go into the ground and die. And the plant that comes up out of that seed doesn't look anything like the seed at all. The seed, in fact, dissolves in the earth and is never seen again. And you have a plant that comes up from there that doesn't look anything like the acorn that you just planted. So what Scripture says is what you're doing as you go through this life is you are packing information into the seed that is your body that will be planted in the earth and will be raised an incorruptible body. What we're talking about is the immortal body that will be raised 
from the dead. We talked a couple times ago, probably in Colossians, uh, since that's the most recent thing we did. In the scriptures, being raised from the dead is not uncommon. It's a big deal, but it isn't uncommon. For example, the Shunammite son, who was raised from the dead by Elijah. Well, as far as we know, unless the guy is in hiding somewhere, he lived a normal life and then died of old age or something else and went into the grave. He was raised from the dead into a mortal body. He was not given a resurrection immortal body. And so he dies again and he will at the end be raised from the dead and will be given an immortal body. So what Peter is saying here, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And so what I'm talking about here is that perishable seed is somebody who is not going to be in the next world. He's going to die and he'll be judged and he'll become a crispy critter in the lake of fire. Imperishable is folks like we are, believers, who when they die, the seed that is planted in the ground, which is their mortal bodies, will be raised up imperishable. So I'm suggesting that's what Peter's talking about here. And again, in all of this, I think, is the question that gets asked of Yeshua, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a question that is floating around in first century Judaism. It's a concept that they're familiar with. And what Peter is saying here is you've changed sides, you believe in the Messiah, you recognize his resurrection, you are now following the truth, obeying the truth, which I'm saying is Torah, and you will be born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And then through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And what I'm saying he's talking about there is everybody goes through natural death, but the word of God remains forever. And what the word of God is saying to these people is having believed on the Messiah and then walked in Torah and righteousness, Yes, you're going to go through natural death, assuming Yeshua doesn't come back in the meantime. But understand that the seed that you are planting in the grave at that point is imperishable. And it will come up a resurrection body which is immortal. So, 24 again now. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So it is the gospel that allows you to change from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. And even though, just like the grass, you may wither and fade and undergo natural death, understand that the seed that you are planting in the grave is imperishable seed and will be raised up a resurrection body which is going to be immortal. All right, chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And again, we talked about this last time. Salvation is used in two senses. One is personal salvation, which is to say, when you are raised from the dead, you are going to make it past the lake of fire. That's personal salvation. There is also the salvation of the nation, where the nation is going to be regathered and moved into the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. This seems to be talking about the latter. Growing up to salvation, I'm going to suggest is something that is national and not personal, although I could very well be wrong. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua Messiah. For it says in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Isaiah 28 that he's talking about. All right, so what's he saying here? First thing he's saying is, you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Now, the grammar there can be read two ways. It can be read that you come to Messiah, who is a living stone rejected by men. And that's correct, he was. Or it can also be, you come to him, you are a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So it isn't real clear which way that's to be read. So in verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua Messiah. So one of the things about Israel, starting at the Exodus, is they are to be a priesthood. The whole nation is to be a priesthood to all of mankind. What happens when we get the sin of the golden calf is the Levites get separated out as priests to Israel. And what I'm saying that this is saying is that you, who are not necessarily Levites and are not necessarily Kohanim, are going to fulfill your original purpose as it was laid out at the Exodus to become a nation of priests. That's thing one. Thing two, Yeshua is the cornerstone. So what he's saying is Israel will be built into a new temple with Yeshua being the cornerstone and all of these Hebrews being the stones that are then built around that cornerstone into a new temple. The priesthood in that new temple will offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Messiah Yeshua. Because remember, Yeshua is a high priest, not according to the order of Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. 
what that seems to be saying to me is Israel would become a nation of priests and that the high priest will be Yeshua. Book of Hebrews. Remember it says that in order for a priesthood to change, there has to be a change in the law. There are three orders of priesthood. The order of Aaron, who sacrificed in the earthly tabernacle or temple. The order of Melchizedek, of whom Yeshua, I believe, is the only member. And then the order of all believers who offer up the sacrifice of praise. What I am suggesting is going to happen here in the new heaven and the new earth, this is a guess. Everybody, it's a guess. This is not saith anybody except this is my guess. Is in the new heaven and the new earth, when Israel is a nation of priests like they are intended to be, the order of Aaron will not be functional. All of Israel will be priests and the high priest will be Yeshua. There's two different time frames. We're talking about, first off, the time frame of the millennial reign. And we're then talking about the time frame of the new heaven and the new earth. And one of the things that Ezekiel makes fairly clear is during the millennial reign, the priesthood according to Aaron is still going to be in business. Remember, it says that uh, descendants of Zadok will sacrifice in there because he was faithful to me. And his descendants will sacrifice. I'm suggesting that's millennial reign territory. New heaven and new earth territory, I'm suggesting is going to be different. Don't know that, I just think it will be. The new heaven and the new earth is modeled by the tabernacle in the wilderness, which is to say you've got a priesthood in the middle, watching over the throne room of God, and then you've got the tribes camped around it. And the tribes don't go in and, and don't serve in the temple. That's done by the Levites and the priests. And what I'm suggesting to you is in the new heaven and the new earth, Israel will be in the new Jerusalem and the nations will be around them in much the same pattern as the camp in the wilderness. Anyway, long drawn out for something that I'm not sure is going to happen, but that's what it reads like to me. So let's pick it up in verse 7 and chomp on through the paragraph. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's straight out of Hosea. Hosea is told to marry a prostitute, and she has children, and one of them is Lo-Ami, not a people, and the other one is Lo-Ruama, no mercy. And what Hosea says is at the end, God will take his people back and they will receive mercy. And they will again be a people. So what Peter is saying here is he's talking about the prophecy in Hosea 
And what he's saying is, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Well, duh, that happens at the Exodus. But when they went into apostasy and idolatry, God sent them into exile and said, you're not a people. But at the end, they will be brought back and they will again be a people and they will then receive mercy. Okay, that's, that's straight out of Hosea. So what he's talking about here is people in exile. He's writing to the dispersion. He's writing to folks in exile. And they would have been intimately familiar with Hosea and recognize that the reason that they're in exile is because they went into idolatry, which is to say adultery, spiritual adultery, and God cast them off, but he promised that they would be regathered. And so what Peter is saying here to these exiles is that's what's going to happen. The comment was that it reads like it's present tense, that they have become a people again by believing in Messiah. I agree with that. I think you're correct. But there's also a future regathering. These people that are being addressed by Peter are in fact not regathered. They're not living in Israel. He talks previously about their inheritance, which is yet to come. So I'm going to read the paragraph starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notice again, on the day of visitation, I'm suggesting we're talking about revelation there. So one of the things he's saying is obviously behave yourselves, which is to say follow Torah. But the other thing he is saying is the Gentiles are going to be anti-Semitic. In verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Okay, so first off is behave. Common biblical theme. Everybody says it. Basically follow Torah. 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what he's saying there is stay separate, maintain your identity as Jews, which they have done for thousands of years. They're also saying be honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and that has happened in every place the Jews have been sojourners. At some point, the Gentiles rise up and accuse them of all sorts of stuff and throw them out. One of the things we talked about probably on Shabbat is Ashkenazi Jews are about 15 points above average 
in intelligence. If you give a standard IQ test to European descent Americans, the average will be 100. You give the same test to Ashkenazi Jews, the average will be about 115. They're very smart, in other words. What happens is when they live among Gentiles, because they are smart, they excel and they cause jealousy. You can hear it all over the internet. Dirty Jews have got all the money. The dirty Jews are the bankers. The Jews have this secret, I mean, all this kind of stuff. And that is born primarily out of envy. In other words, if you have an identifiably separate group of people who succeeds to a greater extent than you do, the temptation is always to blame it on something nefarious as opposed to, gee, they're just smart. And so what Peter is saying here, as you sojourn among the Gentiles, there's going to be friction. But you conduct yourselves well so that at the day of the visitation, they will have nothing concrete to say against you. You have been reclaimed as a people. You have been shown mercy by the gospel. You are a separate people. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, people for his own possession. So these are people who are set apart by God for himself, and that in itself is enough to cause jealousy. If you get a group of people that is successful and is excelling and is doing better than you do in business, and oh, by the way, we're God's chosen people, that rubs folks the wrong way. It just does. And so what Peter is saying here is when that happens, make sure that your conduct is always above reproach, at least in the eyes of God. Shut